Clearly, our primary practices or practices for these eight weeks has been and will continue to be shamatha. But almost like some types of medication that can have, how do you say, undesirable side effects. The practice of shamatha, not the achievement of shamatha, but the practice of shamatha can also have some, how do you say, not so good side effects in the sense that as we're making our mind very focused, very unified, at the same time the mind can become quite small, as in small-minded, as in petty-minded, as in narrow-minded. So I've gotten so single-pointed that I've gotten extremely narrow-minded. You know, actually the words sound very similar. This is why, um, a major reason why, that I have from the very beginning, as we did in the Shamatha project, um, taught and encouraged the practice of the four immeasurables because they directly counteract that tendency. I would suggest our minds become small in two ways. One, they become small as we're doing the practice and doing the practice correctly, settling the mind in its natural state. How do you know? I've mentioned this to a few people individually, and I'll mention it to the whole group. How do you know when you're, when you're doing, practicing, settling the mind in its natural state? How do you know when you're doing it correctly and you can have the confidence, I'm doing it correctly? And as I've mentioned to a few of you, but since quite a number of you are practicing, have this public as a good idea, and that is to have the confidence when you're doing it right, that you're doing it right. It's really important. And so settling the mind in its natural state your awareness is right in the, in the immediacy of the present moment. It's not slipping into the past or the future. You're like the falcon kiting into the wind. That's number one. Number two, your, your attention is directed to the space of the mind, so it's not slipping off to the visual, the auditory, or the tactile. It's focused there. And then one indicator that, in fact, your mind is attending to that rather elusive domain of experience, which is not in front of you or behind you or anywhere. It doesn't have any spatial location. How do you know that you are, in fact, attending to the space of the mind? And as I gave an analogy to one person today, it's like looking, it look like looking at an open door and just looking right at that space of the open door. And then as soon as somebody walks in, whether it's a fly, whether it's a gecko or a human being, as soon as something passes through that door, you notice it. And so in a similar fashion, you're attending to the door of the mind the space of the mind, the dharma datu, in the conventional sense, and you know you're there if, as soon as something arises in that particular space, you're right there and you recognize it. So if those three are there, you're probably doing the practice correctly, but you could be still doing it with grasping. So if you're doing all of those, you're in the present moment, you're attending to the space, if something comes up, you notice it very quickly, and you notice it without preference. You notice without grasping. You notice without lunging in and fusing with it, your awareness is like space, then you're doing it correctly. Okay? It's actually, that was a lot of words, but doing it correctly is actually quite simple. Now imagine you're doing it correctly. What happens? Your, your awareness becomes focused very much in the present moment. That's the practice. As in awareness of awareness, as in mindfulness of breathing, the downside of this is that one can be, how do you say, so focused on the short term that one makes a big deal out of, one takes, as Ledap Lingba says, one takes a short-term view of the meditation. That is, you're in, a, you're in a particular session, you come out of the session, oh, that was a really good session. Boy, I'm doing well. I'm really a meditator. I'm making some real progress. The next session doesn't go so well. Oh, I suck as a meditator. I'm getting nowhere. I'm just wasting my time. Why did I come here? 
What am I doing? Everybody else is surely doing better than I am. And then the next session, a bit better. Oh, I'm actually probably better than most of the people here. <laughs> you know, so it's up and down, up and down, up and down all the time because we're taking this short-term view and Leda Plinga says, don't take a short-term view. But this is the deal. Whether it's your meditation session, whether it's, you know, no granola, you know, one of those little tragedies in life. Um, but the little things that are just cropping up from moment to moment can suddenly be, oh, you know, this is such a big deal. It's, it's very short. Oh, but this is a big deal. I, I heard a dog bark the other day. It was so upsetting. Dogs barking. It's just awful when they do that. You know, well, here we are. I, you know, I've traveled halfway around the world and get dogs barking. If I wanted dogs barking, I could have stayed at home, right? Why don't they control the dogs here? I mean, really? What's all that stuff good for if they can't control the dogs? <laughs> you know, so, so we can make a big deal out of it. Yep, yep. And then it goes yep, 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 yep in the mind. So we can become narrow-minded in terms of time, and we can become narrow-minded in terms of I, me, mine. I'm focusing on my breath, not yours. I'm focusing on my mind, not anybody else's. And I'm focusing on my awareness, not anybody else's. And so therefore this practice can make one very, oh gee, self-centered. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. And if we're just attending to my sessions and my practice and my breath and my mind, and you don't have the, you know, the, the mixed blessing of be clair, being clairvoyant and seeing all the junk in everybody else's mind, then that can also make one very self-centered in a negative sense of the term. And there we are. We're right back to the core, you know, one of the root causes of suffering. So all of this can have a downside. And for this, the four measurables are just what the doctor ordered both in terms of space, like my space, I mean mine, or localized over here, and in time, how, do, how am I doing this week? How did this, how did this session go? How did this day go? All this short time, you know, am I progressing fast enough? And all that kind of stuff, all locked into very small time frames. And then suddenly we're going into, into loving kindness for ourselves and envisioning our flourishing over the coming decades or even lifetimes. We go into compassion, we extend way out beyond ourselves. We go into empathetic joy, tracing back in our own past, but also, of course, attending out into space, out into the world, and then, of course, equanimity is the great leveler, the great homogenizer. So these are really, whereas the shamatha comes in with great blessing, it also comes in with, you know, real, potentially a real downside, but the downside is, has, the, has the remedy in the four measurables exactly. And bear in mind, none of this requires any metaphysical beliefs. We don't, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to go there. If we have metaphysical beliefs, that's fine. I'm not against them. I have them myself. But it's not required for practicing shamatha or the four measurables. Right? It's quite clear. So today we move into empathetic joy. And someone made a comment to me recently, I'll just keep it vague, uh, that when, the, when you know, there's not much to do, then this person, and I, I'm mentioning this not because this person is an oddball. The person might be an oddball, but I don't know, you know one way or another. But because this comment resonated, and I think it's very common, and that is, when there's nothing much to do, then I just go back and think about rotten things that happened in the past. <laughs> and get pissed off at them, you know? Well, this is one person that articulated a habit for, I think, a lot of people, right? And so I know, and, I, and I'll just say, I'm one of those people. It's very easy to dwell on, oh, this person said something to put me down. So on such an occasion, uh, 18 months ago and three days and about 10 minutes ago, somebody said something that was really put me down, really was disparaging, condescending, contemptuous, clearly designed to make me feel inferior, that person inferior. 
and it took them about, uh, let's say, uh, five minutes to do their job. And they did it because they really want to make me feel bad. It's called harsh speech. And they may feel it was true, but it, it's still harsh speech if this is the motivation, right? So let's imagine that took place 18 months, etc., and it took place, and it, and it lasted five minutes, where the person just, you know, let loose the artillery, boom, 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 like, you know, trying to slap me down. Okay, let's imagine that happened. And, the, and that was the person's intention. Imagine, this is hypothetical. Well, I felt really rotten. That didn't feel good at all. Because as far as I cognitively fused what they said, I didn't simply listen to them without distraction, without grasping. I listened to them without distraction and one heck of a lot of grasping. <laughs> Took it to heart. And then and this person goes off and then has a night hot fudge Sunday and does a lot of other things. In other words, a life. But I go back and I play the tape again. And now, as far as my brain knows, and the brain doesn't know anything at all, but in terms of neural patterns, psychologically and personally, as I replay the tapes, I've now gotten abused twice. And I feel bad about it, and I feel pissed off the second time too. And then I remember both, uh, later on I remember both the abuse that I actually received, but then I also remem remember remembering it, and I feel pissed off about both. And so now I've gotten abused three times, and I can actually get abused maybe 50 or 100 times over 18 months, and this person made a terrific investment. Because if, if this person's intention was, I want to make you feel really small and bad about yourself, and I want to just put you down because I think you're an inferior person, and that's what I want, and the person invested five minutes in that, and I say, well, gosh, uh, I would like to just give you compound interest. You gave five minutes? Well, how about I give you 20 hours? And we'll team up together to make me feel really crappy many, many times. And you can go off and have a really nice day. You've done your work, but I'll do all the rest of the work for you. Because I believe, I believe you're right. I should feel bad because I really am a scoundrel. And so this is something that Shantideva actually talks about, I'm quite sure. Is that why should we ally ourselves with those who want to make us feel bad by replaying the tapes and making ourselves, making ourselves feel bad? So this phrase, for the moment what we attend to reality, is reality, comes back once again. And that is, on the one hand, we cannot alter the past. So if such and such a person abused me 18 months ago, uh, then, well, I can't make them not do that. It happened. It is really water under the bridge. Quite so. But how does that event influence me now? How does the past, and I'm speaking especially psychologically, how does the past influence me now? And that's not just dished up. The past right now has no power at all. How the past psychologically influences me now has a tremendous amount to do with what I'm remembering, what I'm dwelling on, and what I'm making real. And so the, the, the rather cute uh, psychological way of phrasing this is, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Some of you may not have heard of that. Um, and that is, we can go back to our childhood and quite deliberately, or just how do you say, involuntarily, we may dwell on the rotten things that happened to us as we, in childhood and adolescence and through later, th later through life, just go back and dwell on the nasty things that other people did to us and the adversities and the crummy things that happened and all the rotten things that happened and dwell on those, in which case that's how the past is influencing us now by dwelling on it. Or we may be deliberately, and now I'm speaking about overcoming a tendency, 
that I know there, I doubt that there are just two people in this whole room that have a, a tendency to dwell on negative things from the past. It's probably a bit more common than that. But to, to balance out, bad things happened in the past. Okay, there we are. But there were also good things that happened in the past. And as with the news that focuses about 90, 95% on negative things and throws us a little sop at the end to make us feel better about all the bad things, um, likewise, we have a tendency, I think, general, and I'm not sure how confined this is to modernity, I don't think all that confined, dwell on the negative of the past, dwell on our own faults, dwell on the faults of other people, how they've mistreated us, grind our teeth over it, ruminating, ruminating, and since that's a tendency and it's unrealistic because it's massively tilted to or weighted towards the negative, empathetic joy comes in and says, how about we get some, re get some realism here, balance this out, so that's what I would like to do in this morning session, or this afternoon session, and that is to return to empathetic joy and deliberately focus on, simply in, a, in the spirit of balance, not trying to, again, put on rose-tinted glasses, but go back to the past, even to early childhood, and reflect, first of all, on the, the kindness, the goodness that has been brought to us by others. And there, I hope you'll have a large repertoire to draw from there. There's one. Secondly, what good we have brought to those, our siblings when you were little kids. Did you ever treat your siblings well? I did on occasion. I'm sure I did. I must have. <laughs> you know? so, but the good we've brought, whether it's children, adolescents, and through adulthood, the good we've brought, and taking delight in that as we take delight in the good that has come our way. And then thirdly, the taking delight in the joy we've shared with others. Could that keep us busy for 24 minutes? to balance out, and what this does is it, it tends, acts as a direct antidote for that which is, uh, how do we say, diametrically opposed to empathetic joy, and that's cynicism, or being a sourpuss, or getting caught up in envy and so forth. To deliberately reflect on this, and in this way the past will influence us differently, very differently, in a very positive way, rather than simply dwelling on the negative. Okay? Let's try that. I'll use fewer words now that I've given a preamble. So let's continue what you've already begun, I'm sure, and that is to settle your body, your respiration, your mind in the natural state.
Let's now venture into the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy and learning through our own experience that by directing our attention in very deliberate ways to very deliberate topics, we can actually regulate our own emotions, cultivate emotional balance. We do not simply need to be trailing along in the wake of whatever emotions come up, dragged along behind. And I think all of you have found now that in order to cultivate attentional balance through the practice of shamatha, emotional balance must be linked to this. It simply cannot be ignored. So to arouse, to uplift, to inspire, to bring a greater sense of lightness and good cheer. Let's now deliberately focus the attention, drawing drawing on our memories, going back to childhood, and with one sweep through our own personal history. Let's recall recall and briefly dwell on the many kindnesses that have been shown to us over the course of our lives, both in terms of enabling us to find hedonic well-being, which is so enormously important, as well as genuine happiness or eudaimonic well-being. As you attend, attend closely until it becomes real, And let this reality arouse a sense of gratitude together with a rejoicing, an empathetic joy in the kindness, the goodness shown by others to us.
and then track through once again. And recall the goodness you brought to the world, including in the very small ways. From childhood on, how you've taken care of others, protected them, helped them out in various ways, sometimes those who are near, sometimes those who are far away. And take delight, rejoice in the virtue. This is not a a sense of self-congratulation. It's not focusing on the self. It is taking delight in the virtue as we take delight in others' virtues.
And finally, let your attention rove through your life once again and light upon and dwell on those occasions when you share joy with others, the joys of success, of simple pleasures of life, the joys of Dharma. Take delight in these joys that have come your way, together with others and their own happiness.
let's bring the session to a close. I'd like to begin, quite briefly, with a few comments or footnotes to um, the comments this morning. I'd like to focus on, again, one of my heroes, and that was Galileo. Uh, As a scientist, really, the paradigm of a scientist. And it seems, judging by his wonderful discoveries, his multiple discoveries, that what he was very clearly interested in, because this is where his attention went, deliberately, voluntarily, was understanding how physical objects moved, what, what was there and how they moved. So in terms of terrestrial physics, major break, breakthroughs, challenging assumptions that had been held for centuries, and here comes this man devising the technology. It wasn't that Aristotle was a foolish man, he was a brilliant man, one of the greatest of all of, all of history, Aristotle did not develop any great technology that I know of. Galileo did. And Galileo brought to simple things like balls rolling down ramps, dropping big objects and little objects off a tower and so forth. He brought a precision of observation that, innate, that, was, that made things obvious that had not been obvious ever before in recorded history. That big objects and little objects fall at the same speed. That object ro- ba- balls rolling down a ramp actually accelerate and don't go at constant velocity. So he had his terrestrial physics and then, of course, his astronomy. And what was one of the many remarkable things about it, this man was all of the technology that he used, he, he developed. He either refined or he created afresh. So I was thinking about him this afternoon. He really didn't have to have much faith in anybody for his physics. He had his own technology and he knew it inside and out. 100% he created it, so there were no mystery there. And then he applied it and he made these fresh observations, seeing things that, as far in recorded history, no one had ever seen before. Um, and so he had his technology, he knew it well, he used it, and he knew what they were good for from the inside out. And that's what he was interested in, the objective, the physical, the quantifiable of phenomena on Earth and then phenomena in the starry heavens. So it was a marvelous, marvelous launch. And of course, the quantitative analysis, the fact that he was also a brilliant mathematician, certainly helped a lot. So that was a fantastic launch uh, for the physical sciences. And I believe he was one of the pioneers of of the scientific revolution, and one of many, that was motivated by very deeply theological concerns, and that is being a very devout Christian, trained as a contemplative in a monastery as a youth, that he was one of those... I'm, I'm almost certain who, if you ask, but why are you interested in this? I mean, why do you really care? I never heard of a Tibetan rolling, ball, ball, rolling balls down a ramp and saying, do they accelerate? Do they accelerate? You know, like, if they do, so what? I mean, why should anybody care about that? You know, 
what does that have to do with the reality of suffering, the source of suffering, the cessation, and the path, you know? <laughs> so I don't think the Tibetans ever got around to that one. I never see, I don't even know what the word acceleration is in Tibetan. Right? But so why would anybody care? Why do you really care whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth? It's just as long as the, we maintain the status quo. You know, one doesn't collide into the other, that would be a bad day. But as long as they, you know, go where they should, then what's it to you? Unless you really wanted to travel there and, you know, why do you care? And it was not for trivial reasons, it was for the most profound of reasons. And that, as, that is being this devout Christian, he was utterly, utterly convinced, believed that God created heaven and earth, he was the great architect, and to understand creation, the more thoroughly you could understand it, by that you could infer things about the nature of the mind of the Creator. Understand the creation, understand the mind of the Creator. Just like a wristwatch, like anything else. Understand the layout of this, and you're going to understand something about the architect, the mind of the architect who designed our mind center. So it was very theological, and of course this whole aspiration for objectivity, objectivity, trying to speak in God's language, which turned out to be mathematics as far as they were concerned. Try to get objectivity of what's really out there independent of our perceptions, what's it look like from a God's eye perspective. It's really a theological aspiration to allow your own mind to ascend to the perspective of God himself. To know God, the mind of the creator by way of the creation and ascend to the perspective of the creator by adopting as much as you can a purely objective perspective not filtered by your language, your senses, and so forth, but what's absolutely out there. So that's how it started. Looking outwards. Now, if we should step back and say, but what if your interest is not so much looking outwards, and what if you don't believe in a God who created everything, and then you're going to understand his mind by understanding creation? What if you don't believe in a, in a personal creator at all? Um, then you might not have any real deep motivation for wondering about whether things accelerate or whether the earth goes around the sun or vice versa. So what if you're simply more interested in what's going on in reality and you would like to suffer less? Kind of a novel notion. But if you have as a working hypothesis that delusion can make us suffer more and having less delusion can make us suffer less and the end point of that would be the truth shall set you free. What if you have that as a working hypothesis? then what would be the most reasonable? And I ask this as, uh, utterly as a non-rhetorical question. I mean, I think it's a pretty important question. If you believe that suffering is at least at the root of a lot of, excuse me, ignorance and delusion, at the root of a lot of the suffering we experience, and we could suffer less, and perhaps, who knows, maybe not at all, but it's truth that's going to get us there, not just by having the right beliefs, rituals, and so forth and so on, then how would one go about that? If you figure truth, well, truth about what's happening, what's the nature of this reality we're experiencing, if that's what you want to understand, what's the reality of the, what's the nature of the reality we are experiencing, not the reality, uh, not the reality of some universe that exists independent of our experience that only God can see, but the reality of the world that we do experience. If that's your agenda, then it might make most sense when you have to, obviously you have to have a sequence of questions. You can't ask all the questions and, and pursue them all at the same time. You have to have a, set up a priority here. And so, what shall I look into first? If I want to understand the world around me, the environment, other human beings, my body, my mind, me, uh, and that's it, what shall I look into first? 
Obviously, there must be different answers for that. Obviously, there are. But to my mind, a really good answer to that question would be, if you really want to know what's happening in this world, then maybe the first thing to investigate would be the tool with, that you are using to investigate the world. Not the world, but the tool you're using to investigate the, the world. So if Galileo, for example, had simply been given a really cool telescope as a present, a really, really nice one, and said, Galileo, use this. I've never used it before myself, but use this and you make a lot of discoveries. I think Galileo being the type of guy that he was, I would have said, well, what is this? Oh, it's, it's got lenses. What's it for? Let me take it apart and see how, you know, you just said I should look through this, but I want to see what is it that you've just given me first. So what are these lenses here for and why are they positioned like that and why are they shaped like that and why are they in a tube? And take the whole thing apart put it all get back together again. Ah, I see. That's how this works. This magnifies things. This could be good for looking up there. At the, oh, let's do it. Now that, I know what it and now that I know what this instrument's for and how it works, I really see exactly how it works, and I have confidence this really magnifies and doesn't distort, or it doesn't just create little concoctions like, you know, looking through a kaleidoscope, that actually I'm seeing through it and not at it. And it's giving me a more accurate portrayal or vision of what's going there through the simple process of magnification. Well, somebody already handed us the telescope. Nobody, I don't know, somebody I made that personal. Somehow we got a telescope. We got some lenses here. It's called the mind. It's called senses. It's called mental awareness, with reason, memory, imagination, and so forth. And so if one's going to use the mind, like Galileo used the telescope to look up there to the stars, if one's going to use the mind, mental awareness, and using also, of course, the senses, then it would make most sense, to my mind, to first of all investigate what's the nature of the instrument that I'm going to use to investigate everything else. And not just assume uh, the instrument I've got must be just great, and now let's go look, right? And so let's imagine that your first priority was, I want to understand the instrument that I'll be using from here on to understand everything else. And so you start looking at the mind. You start observing thoughts. You start observing states of consciousness. You start observing consciousness yourself. The first thing you'll notice, probably within the first five seconds, is you're not able to attend to it with much stability or vividness. Say, well, I want to do this, but I want to do it well. So I guess I have to take a step backwards because I could just sit here with a wandering mind all the time and I'm not going to learn much. So I think I need to take a step backwards before trying to understand the mind. I think I better develop attention skills so that I can observe whatever I want to observe with stability and vividness. So I think that would be the first. I need to step back and make some technology. But then I find within the first day that as I try to refine my attention skills, that that very endeavor is embedded in my lifestyle. And if I'm going around living a really reckless, injurious, sensual, craving, delusional lifestyle, that's going to just undermine every... It's going to take me back every step of the way. I'll take one step forward to try to develop attention skills and one great big step backwards as I go off and get drunk and do a bunch of stupid things in the world. So I guess I'm going to have to refine my lifestyle to make sure that the way I conduct myself with body, speech, and mind is supporting and not undermining my endeavor to train my attention. So I guess I'm going to have to develop ethics and then samadhi, and then I can get to prajna. Does that sound familiar? 
And that might be a really marvelous starting point for understanding the world from the inside out. To get clear, to get stable, to get vivid, to get balanced. The Buddha's statement, the mind settled in equipoise comes to know reality it is. And then venture out with this platform and look at the obvious. By gum, I'm embodied. And I can do things with this body that I can't do with, with Mugi's body. I was trying to raise your hands up, Mugi, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> I'll try again. It's still not working. Different. Different. I've got some control here. I don't have any control over there. So this must be mine, and I guess that's not mine. But now, what does that mean? And so start looking at the body and saying, well, this is where I am. Let's check out what's, what's, the, what's the neighborhood like. Here's my embodiment. And then I see I'm not only embodied, but by cracky, I'm having feelings and some of them I really don't like, both in the body and in the mind. So let's check those out. And then I see there's a lot more going on than just fe feelings. I mean, happy, sad, and indifference. Uh, as I attend to my mind, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Maybe I should check that out. And then I see, of course, I'm not a... Um, a human being in a pet petri dish or in a little vial, I'm actually interconnected with everything around me. So maybe I should check out everything in, inter in, in interrelationship with my presence here as well. And that rings a bell, doesn't it, Malcolm? <laughs> There's core Buddhist vipassana. Close application of mindfulness to the body, feelings, mental states, and phenomena. And then working out from there, as one is doing so, one might find that as one now is attending to the world around, looking inwardly, outwardly, inwardly, and outwardly, that some questions simply fade out as not being so significant. That is, even if I pursue them, where's the real benefit? Because now one might start to see that among the two types of pleasure, hedonic and genuine happiness, that uh, it's much, more, much wiser to invest time in genuine happiness since life is so short and we don't know how short. So maybe he, the hedonic will be there just as a support for getting on with genuine happiness and getting to the root of suffering and the actual sources of genuine happiness. So this means a lot of questions won't be asked because life is so short. It is so short and we don't know how short. That's the bummer. We don't know whether it ends tomorrow or in 50 years or what have you. And so this is going to give a, a, a clear pecking order or type of priority to the type of questions that we will devote our very finite amount of time to. So I checked with the Maji Ricard about a story I'd heard, and he confirmed it was true. He said it was, it was of this great Nyingma Lama from the 19th century, Lama Mipam Rinpoche. And he was, one of, he was like a Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. He was, he was a polymath, incredible brilliance, a brilliant in multiple fields. And the story that I'd heard, Matthew had some inside track on this, to know somebody who actually, it was a, a straight track. So it was not gossip, it was not just hearsay. He heard it was only about one or two steps removed. Uh, Matri confirmed this for me just a few, few months ago. I had heard that Lama Mipan Ramache had come up, like Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, he'd come up with a design for flying machines. Whether it was a helicopter or a plane, I think it was more of a helicopter. But he'd come up with a design for it. That's what I'd heard. And given the, the depth of this man's intellect, his brilliance, I imagine it was not something silly. And he'd, he'd designed this, 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 is a, this is a machine that could fly in the air. And then somebody saw this, and Lama Mipam Ramachi said, this is the distraction, and threw it away, discarded, did not want it to get out, did not, did not want to arouse a lot of people's interest in it. He said, this will be a distraction. So, yeah, let's not put any emphasis there. So I think it's actually a true story. Now, whether it would really fly or not, I don't know, but the attitude doesn't surprise me at all. 
and that is flying contraption or develop compassion, loving kindness, develop shama, vipassana, stage regeneration, completion, tekshut and tutgyo, or flying machine. Flying machine or enlightenment? Flying machine or enlightenment? Bye-bye flying machine. It flew away, <laughs> you know? And so, so there is a matter of perspective. So why is it, since the understanding of the mind has been central to Buddhism from the very beginning, from the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, from the night that he stepped, from the day that he stepped out of his palace and went off and developed samadhi with these one and then two great samadhi masters, all about the mind, from the day he left home about the mind, from the day that he started turning a wheel of dharma about the nature of the mind and the root causes of suffering within the mind, this has been absolutely paramount, central, radically empirical, pragmatic, profoundly rational from the very beginning, and it's been central all the way through. Now, it gets encrusted in tradition. It gets encrusted in dogma. It gets encrusted in narrow-mindedness and blind faith. There's no question about that. But it is something that's encrusted. That is, there is something in the center there that's run all the way through. So I'd like to ask a question here, and this relates then more explicitly to the morning. If we say that, okay, you can either choose Copernicus as a great mathematician or Galileo as a great fully rounded scientist, developed his technology, mathematician, careful experimenter and careful observer, everything, the whole package. Uh, 1610 is a pretty good year. That's when he published the story Messenger. Or was it 1609? I think 1609, 1609. Um, 1609, early 17th century, that it was 1875, late 19th century, before the scientific study of the mind began, the experimental, the laboratory-based, the rigorous experimental study of the mind began, psychology. Philosophers, no doubt. John Locke, very brilliant. Hume, Descartes had his brilliant moments and so forth. But a science of the mind didn't begin until late 19th century. Why did it take them so long? Why a 300-year postponement? And this relates back to the, the little questions I raised this morning. I got really good answers to the wrong question. And that is, I was asking in French and German the word for consciousness. Well, conscience, and I think it's the same word for conscience, which that creates some befuddlement. And then, bewusstsein, nicht? Auf, auf Deutsch, bewusstsein. Isn't that the primary term? And erkenntnis, would that also work? Or erkenntnis, or is it simply bewusstsein? Bewusstsein, yes. So we have a native speaker here. This is Angela, who's nodding. So those two terms are quite separate. But the, word, the, the question I should have been asking is, what is the primary word for mind in French? And that is? Mind. What I've been told, I was told today, and I've heard before, it's esprit, that is esprit. Esprit, mind. And auf Deutsch, Geist. Well, esprit is the word for spirit, and geist is the word for ghost. Spirit is ghost, ghost is ghost. And so those are the terms. Those are the, those are the primary terms in French and German. And the, word, and the word spirit is also very prominent in, in English language as well. Although we have, of course, this more neutral word mind. But as I was reflecting back, trying to understand why did it take them so long to develop a true empirical science, experimental science, rigorous science of the mind, it may have to do, this is now speculation, and then we'll get back to Martin's question and I'll drop this. But the time of Galileo, the time of Francis Bacon, even the time of Newton, was a time 
when Europe was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging psychosis. It was killing women by the tens of thousands, primarily women, some men, maybe even the hundreds of thousands, and killing them if they displayed any type of unusual abilities that were not utterly physical. Healing abilities, that could get you, that could get you killed. Any type of paranormal abilities, that's almost surefire, you'll be killed. And so they were killing people right, left, and center in almost a kind of a psychotic meltdown that went on from 1450 to 1700. In other words, exactly the period in which modern science arose. And what were they afraid of? What were they terrified of? Demonic possession. That if you display exceptional healing powers, and women, women were in competition with barbers. Barbers who cut the hair were also the primary physicians back then. They would do the bloodletting, they would do simple techniques. The women were the competition, and these were the women who had, who had herbs, they had lore, they had maybe charms and so forth. It was a, a real deal. It was like two, two guilds. And one were men and one were, men. one were women. Guess who wins? And got the church on their side. So the barbers didn't get, didn't get lynched or you know, burned and so forth and so on. It was the women, especially women with no husbands. They were easy targets. And so this terror that your sister, your, your, your daughter, your mother, maybe even your wife, or maybe you, if you happen to be on the, you know, the other side of the gender fence, you display anything unusual. You could, be, you could you know, sacrifice your life for that. This terror, anybody displays unusual abilities or behavior, that they are demonically possessed, a terror of ghosts, of spirits, of demonic spirits, and that the world is filled with them and they can capture you at any time. And if they start displaying their abilities through you, then you are toast. Now that, it's hard to imagine, but that really did capture a civilization. And it got, to, of course, to the, to the eastern shores of the United States. You know, Salem witch hunt, it even got there, and the Salem witch hunts in Massachusetts. So the rise of science occurred exactly at the time when people are terrified of geist, esprit, spirits and ghosts. And people like Newton, very deliberately, they disenchanted the objective world. They deliberately swept, and Descartes the same, what was that, two centuries? A century earlier, a century earlier, Descartes did the same thing. He envisioned the universe as a great big machine, a big mindless machine that was clean of ghosts. And very, very deliberately mechanical. It just goes for clockwork. It's a big clock, God is a great clockmaker. And then this, and then there are still spirits, but he left those in the, in the kind of the, you know, in the religious realm, but he kept one realm of, of reality clean, disenchanted, despirited, take sentience out of it and leave it as a mindless clockwork and keep that for your body as well so your, your spirit, your soul, gets, activates the body by way of the pineal gland. It comes stripping in like, down, like, like, sip through, like, like flowing down through a straw. But why would they have that impetus? And I think they were desperately, these natural philosophers, and Newton among them desperately wanting to have some terrain, some domain of reality that was ghost-free. Ghost-free. No spirits, no ghosts, no demonic possession, no witch hunts. One area that we can be safe. And that will be the physical, the objective, the quantifiable world. And that one's clean. And we can go there and we can do wonderful things. We can start developing technology and developing all kinds of powers and so forth. But no one will accuse us of, of demon, demonic possession because we say, look, it's a, it's a mechanism. It's a mechanism. Look, it's transparent. There's no, there's no spirits in there. Just look, 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 look. Don't be afraid. 
It's okay. So when natural science began with the terror of the mind, that is Geist, Esprit, of the intangible, the ghostly, maybe that's the reason it took us 300 years to begin, to begin a science of the mind. Maybe. But we paid a cost. We really paid a cost for that long lag, lag time, as I briefly illustrated this morning. We go back to Martin's question, and now try to speed it up a little bit. Where I left off yesterday was citing not only that Socrates, drawing on this, this Pythagorean lineage, really it was kind of like a guru lineage, but Socrates referred to this bardo and spoke about people being disembodied and then craving another embodiment unless they were, you know, had very refined minds, in which case they would go up to upper, more ethereal realms, celestial realms. And then we have it in the Theravada tradition, the Pali Canon, the Diganakaya, the Majjhima where the Buddha addresses it explicitly and tells the different phases of the Antarabhava. And he also says that three things are necessary for human conception to take place, for a child to be conceived as a human, human embryo. And one is uh, sexual union. I want to get all through. Oh, yes. Second is the woman's ovulation. It has to be the right time of the month. And the third is there has to be a bardo being, a being, an antarabhava being, uh, who has the, con the connection to be conceived there, to enter in. Have to be all three. Three things together, then you get conception. But that bardo being has to come in and those three elements together. And we would say now, from, from the, the whole Dzogchen perspective, what's coming in is not some little being, some little ghost, What's coming in is a flow of, of flow of consciousness, of experience, a flow of this energy of the jiva, or the subtle energy, and the space to experience anything. The substrate, substrate consciousness and the energy that goes with it. And that's what's coming in and enables that sperm and the egg, if we use you know, modern scientific terminology here, rather than blood and semen, uh, if we use modern terminology that makes sense to us, then that's what enables this purely physical organism to become the body of a living human being. So that was from those sources. Now, the Tibetan, from the Indo-Tibetan tradition, coming from the Sanskrit Indo-Tibetan, there were very, very few Tibetans who could read Pali, so I think it's extremely unlikely, probably didn't happen for centuries, that the Tibetans knew about this, this Pali literature, which, as far as I know, was never translated into Tibetan. The Majjhima Nikaya, Diga Nikaya, and those particular sources. I don't think so. Most of the Pali Canon, or at least much of it, did not get into Tibetan. So we can say this is an independent laboratory. And then these elaborate descriptions, more elaborate in Tibetan Buddhism than anywhere else, of the stages you pass through. So I, I began that last night, but I also, or later the afternoon, but I also alluded to the fact that there is rigorous, objective, very critical scientific inquiry into this. And they found dozens of cases of children who are not, on the one hand have accurate past life recall, but among them, there's a minority, but a significant mi minority, who not only have accurate recall of past lives, for which they, ha they know things that they have no other way of knowing than if they actually were in that, that person, but also having detailed descriptions, memories of what occurred in between. And they have multiple accounts of children giving, you know, giving these accounts independently, because they didn't all collaborate to make a conspiracy to delude the people in Virginia. And lo and behold, they found patterns there. And the pattern is that you become disembodied, you don't know you're dead free, very frequently. This is from the straight science. And you can read about this in the writings of Jim Tucker, Ian Stevenson. It's out there in the public domain. Wonderfully ignored by the scientific community. They're making a real good habit of that. Because um, it, it's, not, it's not information they welcome. It doesn't fit with their paradigm. So who needs facts when you have opinions? And so 
the stages are finding yourself dead but not knowing it, and then wanting to interact with people, finding yourself being ignored, getting quite troubled by that, and then kind of the dawning on and the shock that you are dead, and then shortly after that recollection that you are now dead, and if you're a materialist, you're really pissed off. You should be really pissed off. I spent my whole life as a neuroscientist and now I'm in the bardo. This sucks terribly. <laughs> I never want to be a neuroscientist again in all my future lifetimes, you know. I hate it. I really, really hate it. <laughs> now, I think that's going to be the real bummer shot for the materialists. Oh, crap, I was wrong. So there you are in the bardo and you can remember, remember your past life, you know, your past life occupation and all the papers you wrote and got published. <laughs> and wishing you could just take them back. <laughs> no, not that one, not that one, not that one. And so there you are. And then after kind of settling in to this ongoing flow of experience of the bardo, then there arises the increasingly strong craving for most people, for most sentient beings, because you're no longer a human being. But you have human being memories. And if you're listening in on people who are still alive, you can understand English language or whatever your native language is. You're still carrying the imprints that are carried along, not in the brain, which is turning into fertilizer. It's carried in that, in that substrate consciousness. You're still tapping into it. And in a mis mysterious way, I do not claim to understand. You are still seeing people as people. You're hearing voice as voice, understanding language as language, with no eyeballs, no, no cor cortex, you're seeing it directly from the substrate consciousness, but perceiving intersubjective reality, and you're also perceiving other beings in the bardo. So we've seen a number of movies that kind of suggest this. A ghost, remember ghost? That, I think that highlighted that. A sixth sense, that highlighted this as well. So some of them, you know, bring this into the, into the mainstream media by way of fiction. But for ordinary people then, you drift through this, and after a while there arises this very strong, really a craving, to, be, to get real, to get real, which means to be embodied. And then one starts roving. And this comes up in the, in the research of Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, roving, looking, 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 craving, wanting to be. And in one case I read years ago, it was from Ian Stevenson's writings, there was this being in the bardo that hung out for a while in a swamp, and then he found a young woman, as I recall, I can't give the source, but he found some young woman walking along a riverbank, and he was drawn to her. And in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they say a real edible, not edible, but edipole, edipole kind of thing comes up. And that is, if you're about to take birth as a male, you'll be strongly attracted to the female. If you're about to take birth as a female, you'll be strongly attracted to the male. Now, I think there could be exceptions to that, but this is the general kind of deal. So there was this one account where this, this being in the bardo was really a ghost and would actually... As a ghost, he would actually harass people passing through this marsh in which he was hanging out. He'd make them trip and do things. He could somehow engage somewhat with physical reality. It was very weird. Um, but eventually this ghost then saw this woman walking along a, 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 by, by a riverbank. He followed her home. He was drawn to her. She went home and she, she was with her husband and he found his target and he became her son. Her son. He was later asked in this, as the child, why did you harass people when you were in that swamp as a ghost? And he said, there was nothing else to do. <laughs> there was 
<laughs> nothing else that I was bored. You know, kind of like a, a juvenile delinquent bardo being, you know, just, just harass people. What else is there to do? I'm sitting as a ghost in a swamp. What do you want me to do? Drink swamp gas? I don't know, you know. So it's quite interesting the parallel because this, these accounts were written, I think, really with no knowledge of Buddhism. They're just not tapping into Buddhist, Buddhist sources at all. So here's where it matters, and I'll try to wrap this up. And then eventually you're, re you're, you're reconceived. Oh, something interesting happens is as you're dying, you slip into the substrate, from the substrate to the clear light of death, pass through that probably briefly disoriented. You wind up in the bardo, and now you're in this dreamlike flow of experience, and then you're about to be conceived. And what happens is this, this flow of experience, because that's what it is, experience with a space of experience and the energy that's flowing with it, which which is configured with your, your memories, your karma, your predilections, and so forth, you're about to be conceived. That bardo consciousness, that bardo consciousness dissolves. It dissolves into the substrate. The substrate dissolves into the clear light of conception, a mirror image of what happens when you're checking out. You're checking in now. As I recall, you go from the bardo consciousness to the substrate, from the substrate to the clear light of conception, from the clear light of conception back to the substrate, and that substrate is the stem consciousness, as we have a stem cell, that's the stem consciousness that is now in the process of being configured as a human consciousness. And you get that with the development of the nervous system and so forth, and you wind up and you're, you've got a human mind and human senses. So that's the overall picture, and there's a symmetry there that is quite striking. Now, it is said that for most people, as we pass into the bardo, we're largely driven simply by past habit. It, when it's possible to hang out in the bardo for quite a long time and not recognize the bardo as the bardo. So that very ordinary way of dying non-lucidly, entering into the bardo non-lucidly, that is not recognizing the nature of experience and the reality you're having at the moment, it has a very, very strong parallel with a non-lucid dream. Very, very strong. And so the primary motivation for dream yoga in the Tibetan tradition is not to be able to do really cool things in the dream or even, you know, just, you know, have a lot of fun in the dream. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But the primary motivation in classic Tibetan Buddhist practice is to develop the ability of lucid dreaming and then develop, you know, greater mastery of the dream, greater thorough insight with stability and vividness in the dream state as the dream state so that when you enter into the bardo very quickly, you'll be lucid in the bardo. Now, there's a new age, a very, very popular new age notion that when people die, new age notion tied in with reincarnation, that when you die, you enter into the bardo and then simply you choose. Like, I will choose which, which food I want when I go to the, to the dining, dining, dining commons in 15 minutes or so. I will simply choose, oh, that looks good to me. And I think, oh, yes, that would be good. That one simply chooses like that, you know, like a connoisseur. Oh, I think I'd like to be born as a, a crack baby. Oh, I would be, like to be born deformed. I would like to be deformed uh, as a heroin addict. I'd like, to be deformed, I'd like to be born in a rich family. Frankly, that just sounds gibberish to me. Um, it sounds utterly ridiculous, and I think it has no strong basis in empirical, in empirical fact at all. If we go to, the Buddha, to Buddha, Buddhism, say, the statement here is that for most of us, if we've died non-lucidly, we're in the bardo non-lucidly, we're going to have about as much freedom as we have in a non-lucid dream. And that is, number one, we don't get it. We're not really thoroughly understanding the nature of experience we're having anyway. So as in a standard non-lucid dream, 
It's not that we have all of our non-lucid dreams are unpleasant or that they're evil or they're ridiculous. Anything, we have a wide variety, although about 80% of them tend to be unpleasant, generically speaking. But we do tend to act out of habit. We do not tend to act with our highest wisdom, our, our most discerning powers of intelligence, foresight, and so forth. That's not characteristic of a non-lucid dream. We tend to act out of sheer habit. What we have just habitually do in the daytime, we will habitually do in a non-lucid dream. And if we are habituated during the waking state to acting out of craving, hostility, egotism, delusion, and so forth, then that's just going to carry over and expect that's what your dreams are going to be like. And if that's what your waking state is like, and that's what your dreams are like, then you don't have to be an Einstein to figure out what your bardo is going to be like. It's going to be a reflection of what you're habituated to. And so you may just pass through the bardo, not clear, not lucid, driven by your karma, driven by your habits, and so forth. And that's why we have such a tremendous variety, a range of reincarnations, of rebirths, because we are not often motivated. Many of us are mo not motivated on many occasions by wisdom or compassion. We're motivated by craving, by selfishness, by anger, irritation, jealousy, the mental afflictions. So we can judge for ourselves. There's an aphorism from Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism. If you want to know about your past lives, look at your present body. Because your present body is a reflection, a fruition of your behavior, attitudes, and so forth from past lives. So take a good look. Your health, how it looks, how are you aging, and so forth. This will give you some indication of the seeds that gave rise to this, this rebirth. And if you'd like to know about your future rebirths, what's in store for me? Shall I ask a lama? Shall I ask a, uh, an astrologer? Or who shall I ask? If you want to know about your future lives, look at your mind. So if you, want to look at your past, if you want to know about your past lives, look at your body. If you want to know about your future lives, look at your mind. So how can we bring greater wisdom and compassion to that? Well, of course, by living a wise and compassionate life would set up some really good habits. So even if you're in the bardo in a non-lucid way, you've got some really good habits. And the bardo doesn't have to be terrifying. It doesn't have to be unpleasant. Some people have very nice, very pleasant bardos, very soft and cushy. And then they go from there to a very pleasant life. And if they have the motivation, they may come right back to a life of Dharma and carry on from one good life to the next, even non-lucidly. But of course, if we have a choice of lucidity versus non-lucidity, of knowing what's going on or not, then why not go, you know, knowledge is better rather than ignorance and delusion? In which case, developing the ability, and let's take it step by step, becoming more and more lucid with respect to our own minds in the waking state, Recognizing mental events as mental events and not mistaking them simply for reality, what's going on in this intersubjective world, settling the mind in its natural state, just what the doctor ordered, and then at nighttime developing the ability to recognize those mental phenomena as mental phenomena, which we call dreams, dream events, dream people, and so forth, becoming lucid. If we make a habit of becoming lucid in the waking state with respect to our own minds, lucid in the nighttime with respect to our own minds, when you're in the bardo, it's pretty much mind. And if you can be lucid about your bardo mind while you're in the bardo, recognizing the bardo as the bardo, then a very strong parallel with lucid dreaming. If insofar as you're lucid, you really are lucid, then you are in a position to draw in your full intelligence, your wisdom, your compassion, your better qualities. You're in a position to draw on them because you're lucid. You know this is a dream. And so you can make very wise choices as wise as you can be, whatever wisdom you have, you have it on tap, on call. You can use it in a lucid dream. And similarly, if you're in a lucid bardo, you don't have to simply act out of habit. You can bring in what you remembered from before you died 
and you recognize, I'm in the bardo. Now, what was it I learned? What was I learned about the bardo? What are my options? Where might I go? How can I determine that? And if you remember it, now's the time to apply it. The stakes are high. So you might want to learn it well before you're dead, so that when you're retrieving your memories after your death, drawing from your substrate, you can make wise choices. That's how one maintains continuity from lifetime to lifetime. Okay? So, very rich, big question. Thank you, Martin. And we have some, I think will be shorter ones. We still have a few minutes, and I have my glasses here. So those were two long answers. Uh, I'll make a point of giving much shorter ones. I think a lot of these are bound to be short. We'll go into tomorrow. Uh, here's, uh, this was dangerous. <laughs> I picked up one from Noah. <laughs> is there a level of attainment, for example, vidyadara, beyond which it is no longer possible to have a, to have a non-lucid dream or even non-lucid dreamless sleep, beyond which it's no longer possible to, I think, uh, be, beyond which it is no longer possible to have a, that, good, 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 non-lucid dream or non-lucid dreamless sleep? That's a good question. That's a good question. And I'm going to totally surprise you with my answer. Don't know. Don't know. I mean, I, I don't know a lot of things where I think I do know. Uh, but this is one where I don't know and I do know that I don't know, which means I'm utterly irrefutable. Because <laughs> no, nobody can tell me, yes, you do know, yes, you do know, and then give me some reasons why I really know what I don't know. Um, what I do know is that once, based upon the teachings of Tsongkhapa, uh, that once you've achieved shamatha, he states this very clearly in his Lamrims, his great treatises, that once you've achieved shamatha, your, the samadhi that you achieve by way of, of achieving shamatha slips right into your sleeping consciousness. It just, it just naturally slips in. Your mind has gotten so balanced, so clear, stable, that you don't just lose it as soon as you fall asleep. And so your samadhi flows right into sleeping stage, which would imply dreamless sleep as well as, as dreaming state, which would mean once you've achieved shamatha, then lucid dreaming should be very easy. And that's just with shamatha. Okay? If you've added to that real insight by way of vipassana, if you become more and more lucid with respect to waking consciousness, right? maybe even fathomed rikpa, then I can't say exactly. There, there probably is a correct answer out there someplace in a text I've not read. But I would say the, the tendency for non-lucidity during the waking state, deep dream and, dream, and dreaming, would be less and less and less and less. That's what I would say with a lot of confidence. Okay, good, interesting question. Here's one from the philosopher from Ilsa. Um, yep. uh, is the third phase of awareness of awareness? Yeah, practice. You said something like this in the third stage, in the third phase of awareness of awareness. You said something like this: Let the mind. Descend into, oh, that's the fourth stage, if this, is, if this is the quote. This is the fourth stage. We've had four days. We just had the first one this morning, wasn't it? Yeah. So, let the mind descend into the heart. Uh, if that is not already so, okay, could you please explain this more? Briefly, my question, what is the relation between heart and mind, heart and consciousness? Very interesting question. Uh, worthy of a true philosopher. And I, w I, I love the word philosophy, and I know some really superb philosophers living, and I can't say that I know them who are dead, but I certainly have a lot of respect for them. Uh, this is a wonderfully philosophical question. Uh, so, the, so the question is, 
what is the relationship between heart and mind, first of all, and then heart and consciousness? Well, of course, I'm going to respond from the Buddhist perspective because that's the only one I have any real familiarity with that is not simply intellectual. Um, it's quite important here that the, the term citta in Pali and in Sanskrit, the word sem, which is a direct translation in Sanskrit, um, it really refers to heart-mind. So sem zombo, sem zombo. His Holiness has said, the heart of my religion is sem zombo. The heart of my religion having a good heart. And it's sem. Right? Sem means mind. Oh, he has a very sharp sem. Sem chang bo There's a very clever sem. So the one word means heart and mind. So this division that has, I'm sure, certainly in some ways it must have enriched, but in some ways I think it has utterly plagued Western philosophy and science right to the present day, is the Aristotelian split, and he didn't invent it, I don't think, but he certainly elaborated upon it, this split between emotions and reason, between heart and mind. And there's a gender bias to it as well. Reason is a male thing, and the heart, the emotions are a female thing. And Aristotle had very much of a missionary, missionary position notion of who should be on top. <laughs> that reason must dominate and be above, on top of, and make, make sure you really control heart, emotion, passion. Now, that's not alien, that is, in terms of our passions, of great enormous desire and so forth, is there a Buddhist theme that we should bring in intelligence, pranya, prajna, or intelligence, wisdom, to make sure that our passions, our great emotions and so forth, don't get out of hand, that they're well regulated? Definitely, yes. But I would say bodhicitta is a passion. Really, bodhicitta is a passion. Compassion. That's a, that's a passion with, right? Compassion. There's got to be a passion with. Love is a passionate yearning. So are these supposed to be higher or lower than wisdom? Well, no, these are the two wings, on the, two wings of the bird. And none of, none of those, it's not a biplane. You know, they're on the same level. Wisdom and compassion, the two great, the great companions. So the first answer is that heart and mind really are two words for different aspects of one flow of experience. And one wants to, I would say, be very careful about putting a hierarchy on the two of them. Uh, and then we have heart and consciousness. Uh, if you ask any traditional Tibetan, and I would assume it must be true for Mongolians and other people who are you know, in the Buddhist tradition, I've lived with Tibetans for, I think, about 14 years, and very often when they point to their minds, they'll point to the heart, the heart-mind. And the reason for that is because the, the energies, the prana, strongly associated with mind, consciousness, are centrally located at the heart. And in fact, this is, it's from this heart chakra that in the formation of the fetus, you start with the nucleus, and the nucleus is the heart, and then the prana and the, the, the nadis, the channels, start to flow out from the heart chakra. But this is central. So during the formation of the fetus, then you develop multiple chakras, you develop multiple nadis and so forth, but they're all coming out of the heart. Right? And in the dying process, what happens to the pranas? They all converge back on the heart. There's a symmetry once again. Right? So from the clear light of conception to the clear light of death, you have a symmetry all the way through. And so the heart is central, and we, we so often feel our emotions in the heart. And at the same time, even though I would say just pretty much is a, a pretty good generalization, there is no Buddhist science of the brain. I just don't think any Buddhist theory rises to the level of science. I don't think so. 
So Buddhists have everything to learn from the neuroscientists about the brain, the significance of the brain in so many different ways. Because uh, there just isn't such. And Buddhists do not have a quant- quantitative science of behavior, which the West does have, the modern world does have. Buddhism, I say, does, ha- does have a qualitative science of behavior, no science of the brain, which is a great dearth, great emptiness. But it seems we've gotten by for 2,500 years without it. But it would be nice to add it. Why not? Bring it richer, bring it in the 21st century. Buddhism does have an empirical science of the mind. And so the heart, the heart and consciousness very closely interrelated and in the dying process. So as we have consciousness linked with the pranas at the heart when the, when the embryo begins to d- develop, likewise at death the pranas converge back on the heart, they come out of the brain, they come out of the throat, they come out of the, the lower chakra, the navel chakra, they all converge in on the heart chakra. And consciousness is the rider on the mount of these energies, of these winds or energies, the pranas, and so it converges back on the heart, and then it goes into the introspectable bindu, when you pass into the clear light of death, and then when that disengages, then all you're leaving behind is an empty shell. And so that would be a short answer, short answer to a very rich question um, from the Buddhist perspective. And it's not quite 6.05, but it's 6.03, and I think that's close enough. So I will try to segregate the ones that have been answered from those that have not. Yeah, so those are done. These ones I will certainly attend to tomorrow. So I hope that was a little bit helpful. I did my best. Wish you a very... Good meal, and I'll see you tomorrow morning.